Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Kleber, your host, and with me today is Caleb Wells. Hey, y'all. Hey, Caleb. How's that new YouTube channel doing? It's a lot of fun. I have I have two subscribers. <laughs> so, hey, you know, one you got to start somewhere. I think why? why is one and my wife is the other one. So, okay. <laughs> well, after we're done here, I'll make it three. All right. Cool. <laughs> All right. And why? How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. Yourself? Good, good. It's almost the shortest day of the year for us here. So, you must be dead of summer. Yeah, it's getting starting to get hot. It's nice, actually. This year hasn't been too hot. So, we've had a few good, few good days, been to the beach and things like that. So, nice. No yeah. fires? Uh, not yet, I think. Um, I think other states have started to have fires. But I think it, cause we, we've, gone, we've got that La Nina thing now. So, I think it might be better this year. Fingers crossed. So. Yeah, definitely fingers crossed. Hurricane yeah. season ended last week for us, so. Oh, yeah. Really? I so guess, there's I no... Guess, well, officially, right? I mean, anything can happen, but, and, you know, officially we're off the hook until next year. 2020 so how many hurricanes did you get in the end? It was 30-something. It was it, it was a record, like an all-time record, so. But, and uh, it's been in the 30s here this week in New Orleans, which is cold for us. I mean, that's cold, so it's been nice. Right, so cool. that snow that on minus <laughs> minus zero is uh, yeah, thir- thirty two is uh, Fahrenheit zero Celsius. It snows in New Orleans like once every ten years, and it doesn't stick. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Well, I think we're going to welcome back to the podcast yeah. our friend that everybody loves, John Skeet. Hey, hey John. John. Hey, nice to be here. I'm I'm slightly tempted to. Uh, to sort of say, hey Galen, I've been listening to so many 538 podcasts that Claire Malone saying, hey Galen, is just sort of embedded in my, you know, when someone says, hey, you say, hey Galen. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. But no, no, th- for thanks me. for coming I, back. That's fine. Yeah. Do you feel like you've maxed out in your core areas of expertise in programming? Not sure what to learn next or how that'll help you get to the next stage of your career? Let me help. I'm starting a program to help developers move up in their careers using proven techniques and by starting a podcast in order to advance. Right now, I'm only scheduling calls to see where you're at, where you want to go, and how you can get there. I'm not doing any sales pitches. You can schedule that call at devchat.tv slash next level. Well, the, the whole time of a, an epoch for a time period, like with SQL, to me is interesting. I mean, I, I guess I can see... See the reasoning why why you need a starting point, but just to to pick one or who picked it or how it was arbitrarily picked is is interesting. Hmm. And particularly the the epoch for .NET state time type is particularly interesting. So that's January the first one AD in the Gregorian calendar system, which no one was using in one AD, and it's also not even it's not a proper epoch because. Depending on whether you're using a date time with a kind of UTC or universal or local, it could mean different instants in time. So, yes, if you're using UTC, then we can say the epoch was exactly then. But in other cases, it's it's a bit weird. But that's really date time's fault rather than the epoch itself. Um, the Excel and I want to say com, possibly something else, epoch of... It's not the start of 1900, and it's sort of not the day before, because there's a bug in, I can't remember whether it was originally 
in Excel, originally in Thingy123, Lotus123, but there was something that believed that uh, treated 1900 as a leap year when it shouldn't be treated as a leap year. So you had to take one day off from or, or add one day on to the values. And it's like, why couldn't they catch that a bit earlier? That doesn't make much sense. So yes, all, all of that is a bit weird. It not being the start and it being one day off from even from that is uh, is a bit bit strange. Um, the Unix epoch that's uh, yeah, January 1st, 1970, that's the most commonly used epoch these days, I think, is interesting uh, and will have a very, you, know, you, you sort of think these are almost entirely artificial and what difference can it possibly make? Well, it might make a difference in 2038 when we run out of, um, I want to say in 32 seconds, I could be wrong there. I, I, I think it is. Certainly sometime in 2038, um, people using Unix time at a particular granularity um, with a particular data size will find that things wrap. So they go back, I guess, uh, 68 years. So it will suddenly think it's 1902 instead of 19 uh, instead of 2038. Wait, um, so are we having another Y2K event happening in like yeah, 18 years? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hopefully, I, I think it won't be nearly as bad as Y2K because I think almost all software these days is either using 64-bit values or has accounted for it. Um, so I don't think it will be that bad, but it is basically the same kind of thing. And it's kind of weird that the epoch is chosen arbitrarily, but if they'd chosen 1960 instead of 1970, then, you know, at that point, we'd be saying, eek, in only eight years, we're going to find out whether nuclear power plants and nuclear missile silos might have a vulnerability about this. That would be bad. Um, you know, if, if you've got some, some nuclear missile silo that, that says, okay, I will fire the missile. I will assume that, that um, we've been attacked if I haven't heard from my partners over the last you know, 10, 10 minutes or whatever, and suddenly they think, Eek, it's been 136 years um, because of a wraparound bug. And so launch all the missiles! Ah, death! Um, yeah, that, that would be kind of bad. Sorry, Sean, you're muted. It reminds me of my favorite movie with Matthew Broderick, War Games. Ah, War Games, yes, yes. Yeah. Good fun. So we talked about abusing C-sharp. We talked about time. Should we get into the .NET functions framework? Yeah, that would be good. That would be fun. Okay. Um, what is yeah, it? So so, uh, first, let's take a step back and talk um, not about the functions framework, but about Google Cloud Functions. So this is where I will be talking about work, which I don't tend to do. I, you know, almost everything we've talked about so far has been what I do for a hobby. But this is actually what I do for a living now. Most of my work is supporting Google APIs via client libraries for .NET. So if you want to talk to the Google Cloud speech-to-text API, you find my client library, you know, my team's client library, install it as a NuGet package. Hopefully it just works for you out of the box and is a delightful experience. The functions framework is slightly different. It is a really, really small wrapper around ASP.NET Core in the case of .NET. But the idea is that it, it provides the same contract that the functions frameworks in other languages do, 
and the contract itself is really tiny. It's it's basically well, you should observe this these environment variables that tell you which port to listen on and which function to run. And the idea is this is for functions as a service that Google Cloud Functions will host your function. If you've used Azure Functions and AWS Lambda, um, I'm sure my colleagues would tell you why Google Cloud Functions is better, and folks in Azure Functions would tell you why Azure Functions are better, and likewise AWS Lambda. But you know, conceptually, they're very similar. And I have to say, I was skeptical about the utility of functions for a long time. I thought, well, why wouldn't I just stand a Kubernetes cluster up and deploy a service, and then I can deploy as many services as I want, and they can do much more than one thing, and it's all really great. Um, and I went to a talk that said, don't think about the technology. This isn't about technology. This is about pricing. This is about you being able to write some code and deploy it fairly easily. So that, that's part of the technology, but there are ways to deploy Kubernetes services easily as well. Um, but you can deploy your function, and you will only be charged when it runs, and charged a reasonable amount. So you can do huge. You can deploy as many functions as you like without them having to reserve bits of CPU and things, and you can just uh, not worry about the cost of it. I have a bunch of functions deployed at the moment, which I may never use again. And at some point, I'll probably tidy them up and delete them. I couldn't do that with my Kubernetes cluster because if I have too many services going, well, they're each you know, reserving certain amounts of memory and things. If you have a giant, giant cluster, you can afford to, to do that. But um, you know, I'm paying for my cluster. I don't want to pay for all that. No, that makes perfect sense. Actually, yeah. right, I'm doing something similar in Azure. Instead of having an app service, which is going to cost me 30, 50 bucks you know, uh, a month at least, I can do a blob storage website with a couple of Azure functions, and I'm good to go. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's the sort of the pricing goodness of it. Um, and the challenge for me was how can I how can I write some code that is going to be easy for me to maintain because this isn't going to be my full time job. Um, you know, it's only a small part of my full time job, and probably no one else wants to maintain it as their full time job. So it needs to be. I want to build as much on top of ASP.NET Core as I can. I want to follow ASP.NET Core idioms as far as I can. But I also want to make it as tiny as possible so that the getting started experience is really easy. I'll just describe that getting started experience. We'll link to a blog post that I wrote that takes you through everything. But basically, the very, very first time you need to run .NET new minus i google.cloud.functions.templates, and then give a version number after double colons until we've gone to v1. Yeah, we're currently at v1 beta 4 or something. But while it's in pre-release, you need to put the version number. So that just installs the templates, and they're just regular .NET Core templates, which now appear in Visual Studio if you uh, if you turn on the, the preview feature, which is a lovely thing. And at that point, you can create a function as easily as you can create a console app. So you do, you know, mukta hello world or hello function, cd hello function, and then .NET new, um, and it's gcf-http creates you an HTTP function. I'll talk about different function types in a minute, and that creates you two files, creates you the hello function.csproj and function.cs, and that function.cs is probably 
about 30 lines of code of which probably 10 lines of comment. Um, so a little bit like a Hello World console app, you, know, you get your program.cs and it's tiny. And when you run it, it just prints Hello World. And you get a project file that is also tiny. Well, compare that with if you do .NET new ASP.NET Core, or yeah, I can't remember what the what the names are. Even if you've got an empty empty ASP.NET Core project, there's a fair amount of code in there. There's at least you know a, a program.cs, and probably they give you a startup.cs. I would imagine, and certainly if you do a Web API or MVC, they're giving you a load of stuff. Well, that's fine, and I'm not. To be really clear, I'm not um, trying to knock Microsoft for that, because if you're doing a whole website, then yeah, you probably want layouts and all that, all that jazz. If you're doing a function, the idea is you're trying to be targeted, so you want to do one thing and do one thing well. So the the code that it creates for you, you might expect it to have a main method that then calls something else, and there isn't. There's just it creates a class called function that implements IHTTP function, and that's all it does. And IHTTP function just says, well, I'm an asynchronous, uh, asynchronous method returning a task, and you get an HTTP context. I think that's it. Can't remember. I really like the name of the project that you mentioned. I think this is based off of Project Dragonfruit. Ah, uh, right, yeah. So the, this is the, the dragonfruit has the magic bit that, that I'll yep. just come to in a sec. Yeah. So you've got this class that implements an interface, and that's that's all the code in your project at the moment when you've done .NET new, and you've got the project file, and yet you can do .NET run, and it starts the web server for you. And I'm hoping that people will go, "Wow, that's really cool." Oh, I kind of want to know what's going on under the hood, but but hey, it's really, really cool. And the what's going on under the hood is that within the the, the project file that is created adds a reference to Google Cloud uh, Google.cloud.functions.hosting. We've got four different NuGet packages. You you kind of don't need to know the details of them. But the hosting package has within it a an MS build targets file and an MS build props file. And basically, when you've got a dependency on that project, then if your project is an application as opposed to a library, because you may well want to write your own helper libraries, and those don't want to be runnable because they're just helpers. But if you've got an application and it's depending on Google Cloud Functions hosting, then these MS build targets just generate you a main method and set that as the entry point for the for the project. And the the main method is really simple. It just calls into Google Cloud Hosting, Google Cloud Functions Hosting, and says, hey, please start the functions framework for me and find the right function based on the command line arguments. And this is the assembly that is likely to contain the function, or you know, that I expect to contain the function. And if you if you want to put multiple functions into your project, then when you run .NET run, you need to specify what the function is, or you need to specify an environment variable. But I took the design approach of, hey, most people are only going to have one function. And if you've only got one function, isn't it really annoying to have to specify it every time? Can't we just detect that you've only got one function and just run it? So that's what .NET run does. At the moment when you deploy the same so you deploy this to uh, to Google Cloud Functions just by running gcloud functions deploy, and then 
put a bunch of command line arguments. And unfortunately, at the moment, one of those command line arguments has to be the name of the function. The bit of magic that finds a function is slightly separate to the the code that's deploying this on on our behalf. So I want to get that fixed at some point, but I don't know when that'll be. But that's that's the basic of it. That you know you run .NET run and it brings up this web server for you that will only the only thing it's going to invoke is your function. So you don't need to worry about routing. Don't need to worry about half the things in ASP.NET Core that you would normally worry about because all it, all it can do is invoke your function. Now, I mentioned HTTP functions, and they're kind of cool. It's you know, I've got an HTTP function for current affairs that returns me some HTML um, that tells me how many COVID cases there are in the UK and in my particular area, and stock prices, and when the US election was on, it was telling me what the 538 forecasts were and how they changed and stuff. And that's a function, and it's that's perfectly useful. But what I see as the bigger advantage of functions moving forward is responding to events. So you can respond to, for example, a Google Cloud storage event where you know, someone has created a file in your storage bucket and you get to say, aha, that looks like it's an image file. I will run image recognition and write a text file alongside it that kind of gives a description of that image. And that's actually one of the examples I've, I've got within the GitHub repo. And it's not a lot of code, which it's really pleasing to me. Those are dealt with as what are called cloud events. And the idea of eventing is old, and no one involved in cloud events would say anything else. But the the point of the cloud events format, this is a CNCF project to unify the sort of format of cloud events. It doesn't say that everything has to conform to a particular schema, but it says this is kind of how that schema is then represented so that it's much easier to interoperate. You can you can build an event, a cloud event proxy, for example, that would log the, the event types that are passing through it or whatever without losing information because it's not like they can be any arbitrary format. There are specific things. This is the HTTP binding for cloud events, etc. Um, and the great thing about that is there's support in Azure, there's support in Google Cloud Functions. I'm sure that AWS has support as well. And so it should be fairly easy for a Google Cloud Function to listen for events from Azure that are cloud events. And you could write code that looks very similar to the code that's used to consume Google Cloud Events or Azure or AWS Cloud Events. And yeah, the details are going to change because the payload changes but you're handling, the, the patterns should be familiar and we can all work and play together nicely is, is the idea. So that's just a case of implementing a different interface and the functions framework detects, oh, you, it looks like you're trying to get a cloud event, trying to respond to a cloud event. And you can say, I respond to any cloud event or I respond to a particular kind of cloud event and it will try to deserialize the, the data, the payload within the event and give you that already so that you don't have to do any of that. The, the idea is you should have to write as little code as possible. So that's that's cloud events. And just to you know, do do interrupt me if you have <laughs> aspects that uh, that need interruptions. But I can I can keep going on this for, for a long time because I, I had so much fun designing this and I learned so much about ASP.NET Core. 
because there's so much that you can just lean on. So well, I, w- I did want to bring up the, and, and we can come back to this, you know, because you're on a roll, <laughs> but how you actually built a uh, testing package for yeah. your your .NET function so that, framework, that which I think is two awesome. Other things I wanted to talk about. Yeah, I want to talk okay. about testing package, and I want to talk about dependency injection and customization and stuff. So the testing package is that's a pattern that we use in NodeTime as well. So NodeTime has this iClock interface that is the alternative to using datetime.utc now, which is static. And so, you know, how are you going to test code that uses datetime.utc now? Well, in NodeTime, you inject an iClock, and then in your production code, you inject systemclock.instance, and in your test code, you inject a fake clock that you can say, hey, I want it to say that it's this time or whatever. So the idea of having a separate NuGet package that's got all the fake stuff that you only want in tests, you don't want to even have access to it in your production code, at least in 99% of the time, was something that always made sense to me. And I knew that Microsoft had a test server as part of ASP.NET Core. And I thought, well, okay, if I want to 